When you meet someone new, how do you learn about them? How do you find out what their character's like? Well, one way is you watch them. You see the things they do. You see the things they prefer. You see the way they treat people. Uh, Two people going out on a date. Uh, They do things together so that they can get to know one another. But there's a second way we can get to know someone, and that's to ask them questions. And then they can tell us about their personality and their priorities and their preferences. And that's the way to really get to know someone. Because you don't have to misinterpret actions. Actions can be misunderstood. Instead, somebody can tell you why they did something. They can tell you about their character, about their dreams and their plans and what they're passionate about. So so doing things together, that's one level of how to get to know someone. But it's the long, unguarded conversations where you really get to know a person. And it's the same with knowing God. In Exodus 32 to 34, we see both of those ways. We, We get to watch God and we get to listen to him as well. We have a story about him, about how he acts. That's chapter 32. But, God wants, uh, but Moses wants to know more about God. And so he asks him. That's in chapter 33. And then in chapter 34, God actually tells Moses what he's like. And the story and the self-description, they agree, they complement one another. In fact, they do it so well that there is probably no other passage in the Old Testament that better shows us God's character and nature. In fact, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 34 are the most quoted verses in the whole Bible. They're the most alluded to, referred to, and the most quoted. Uh, They really get to the heart of who God is. Uh, So listen carefully. Uh, Listen carefully, because if you do, you will get to know God better. Uh, You will come to rejoice in his mercy and his faithfulness. You'll be filled with gratitude that he abounds in love and faithfulness, but is slow to become angry. That his basic orientation is for you, not against you. You'll be humbled on the one hand by your your own sinfulness, but at the same time you will grow in confidence that you're forgiven and accepted. You'll be encouraged to pray more boldly. So that's the sales pitch. Let's hope it measures up. Uh, Listen up. We're picking it up in chapter 32. Last week, we were all the way back in chapter 20. Moses was up Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, but not just the Ten Commandments. While he's up there, God gives him a bunch of other laws as well. Uh, Chapters 20 to 23, we we get an expansion and an application of the Ten Commandments. And then he comes down for a bit and then he goes, seems to go back up again. Chapters 25 to 31, there are instructions for building the tabernacle. Now there's lots for Moses to write down. In fact, chapter 24 verse 18 says he stayed up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And that sets the scene for verse 1 of chapter 32. Uh, Verse 1 begins, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain... They gathered around Aaron and they said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. The people have become so dependent on Moses, they don't know what to do when he's not around. Moses led them. Moses had gone before them. 
And so now they want Aaron to make gods to go before them. So, verse 2, Aaron collects their gold jewellery, he melts it down, he makes an idol in the shape of a calf, and then he builds an altar in front of the calf. And he announces in verse 5, tomorrow there'll be a festival to the Lord. And that's what they do. Verse 6, they're so keen, they get up early and they offer sacrifices, except it's not to God, it's to a statue of a golden calf which they were told not to make, and then they worship it, which they were also told not to do, and then afterwards they have a great party, which almost certainly includes some behaviour God had also just forbidden. God promised that if they kept the covenant, they would be his treasured possession, and they promised they would. They they promised that they'd obey everything he'd commanded, and yet they haven't even lasted six weeks that Moses has been up the mountain. Uh, verse 7, the scene switches from down below to up the top to God and Moses, and God says, go down. The people have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. Uh, in verse 9, he says, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, then I will make you into a great nation. Now, just an interesting little thread that runs through these chapters is the number of references to body parts. Uh, Israel is stiff-necked. Uh, apparently it comes from cattle or horses that you can't turn to go in another direction. They're stubborn, they're unteachable, they want to go in one direction, you want them to go in another Now, that's an expression that's crossed over from Hebrew into English. We'll occasionally say someone is stiff-necked. But the way God is described here, let's just say it hasn't crossed over from Hebrew into English. He says to Moses in Hebrew, Leave me alone, for my nose is hot against them. (laughs) A hot nose means that God is angry. He wants to destroy them. They deserve to be destroyed. God would be entirely consistent with his promises to just wipe them out. But notice what he says to Moses. Leave me alone, for my nose is hot against them. It's almost an invitation for Moses not to leave God alone. It's a hint, I think, that God's character is less towards being angry and more towards being forgiving. It's a hint that if Moses was to ask... God would cool his nose. He would calm his anger. And that's what Moses does in verse 11. He says to God, why should your nose burn against your people? And then he goes on to give God two reasons why he shouldn't. Firstly, because if you do, verse 12, the Egyptians will say, you brought them out of Egypt on purpose to kill them. Your name will be dragged through the mud. And secondly, verse 13, you promised... Abraham, Isaac and Israel. You'd make their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Because you're faithful to your promises, because of your reputation. And so he pleads in verse 12, turn from your fierce anger, relent. It's actually a word that's used for repent. Repent and do not bring disaster on your people. Now, if we've been following the way that God has acted with his people from Adam all the way through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, 
we're not going to be surprised by what God does. He does just what Moses asks. Verse 14, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he threatened. It's actually the word for repent. The Lord repented. Now, that should puzzle us, I think. It's hard to work out how God can be sovereign and controlling and planning and knowing everything, and yet it seems like here he's changing his mind. And I think part of the answer is bound up in chapter 34 where God says he abounds in love and faithfulness but is slow to become angry. His natural inclination is to love. He's easily convinced to keep forgiving. It doesn't take much to convince him to keep forgiving. The natural, simple way of reading this is that Moses' prayer caused God to change the path that he'd suggested. We may not understand that, but can I suggest we can rejoice in that? Because it means that when we pray, we can be confident our prayers are heard, our prayers are effective. Somehow, us praying is bound up in God's purposes being achieved in the world. That's startling. Back to Moses, verse 15. He heads down the mountains to check out the damage. He's carrying the two stone tablets. He's doing very well for an 80-year-old, I think. He's up and down the mountain. (laughs) He's carrying his load. You know, he's doing the extra burden. He gets to the camp, verse 19. He sees the calf. He sees the partying. He throws down the tablets. He breaks them into pieces. It's not just a fit of anger. He's destroying, he's showing what Israel's done to the covenant. They have smashed the covenant. And he's showing them as an image of what they've done to the covenant. And then, for good measure, he destroys the calf. He burns it and then grinds it into dust. God may be slow to get angry, but it seems like Moses isn't. And then, verse 21, he turns his attention to Aaron, who he'd left in charge. There's the broken tablets... There's the ground-up calf, and now he turns his attention to Aaron, and I wonder if Aaron thinks that he'll be next. Look at his weak reply in verse 22. Don't be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. It's true. Aaron goes on to say, They said to me, make us gods. So I said, verse 24, take off your jewellery. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) What a ridiculous piece of reinventing history, of of blame shifting. It'd be hilarious if it wasn't so sad. Meanwhile, verse 25, the party continues to rage out of control in the camp. They're running wild. And Aaron hasn't stopped them. And Moses realises that the nations who hear about this will laugh. God's name will be ridiculed. His reputation will suffer. And so he stands at the boundary of the camp and he shouts out for volunteers. Who is for the Lord? Verse 26, and the Levites, the priests, join him. And they bring their swords and they go through the camp And they kill those involved in what was probably an orgy. Killing brother, friend, family member. And we're told that day 3,000 died. 
It seems like that finally stops the party. And verse 29, Moses commends the Levites for defending God's honour. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't help wondering if Moses did the right thing or not. Is this what God wanted? I don't think the narrator makes it obvious whether this is a good or a bad thing. Either way, it's not going to be the end of the matter. Verse 30, the next day Moses assembles the people and he says to them, you committed a great sin, no no doubt about that. Perhaps I can make atonement. Perhaps I can satisfy God's anger. Now, is he thinking about the punishment he's just performed as a way of atoning for the sin? Or is he thinking about the offer he's just about to make God? Once again, I'm not sure it's clear what he means by making how he's going to make atonement. So Moses goes into God's presence and verse 31, he confesses the sin of the people. He asks God to forgive, just wipe out the slate. And then he adds, but if not, if if you're not going to just forgive, then blot me out of the book you've written. He's offering himself in place of the people to pay the cost of their sin to be the atoning sacrifice for their sin. But look at God's reply in verse 33. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. We don't know. I want to know more details about that. When did it happen? How many died? We're not told. So in this little speech, on the one hand, God says it's not up to Moses to make atonement. No one else can pay for another's sin. Each has to pay for their own sin. That's what justice is. And God is the one who will look after justice. Which he does in time. He brings justice. Why? Because he's slow to become angry. He's slow to become angry. And what Moses couldn't do, couldn't make atonement, in God's timing, Jesus does. When Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice, God himself satisfies his own justice in paying for the sin, not just of Israel, but for the sin of the whole world. You can't do it, but I can, says God. And he does. And I wonder in this speech if there's not a slight rebuke to against Moses and his quick action of immediately delivering the death sentence. God says, your job is to lead the people. I will do the blotting out. You don't need to do it. When the time comes for me to punish, I will punish. And then he describes that plague, verse 35. Moses is quick and impulsive to act. Remember how he killed the Egyptian on an impulse way back in chapter 2 and now he's jumped in once again. Whereas by contrast, chapter 34 says God tells Moses that he's slow to become angry uh, while Moses seems to be quick to anger. Despite the people deserving it, despite them failing the conditions of the covenant, God perseveres. He's slow to become angry. As we move into chapter 33, he tells Moses 
to, to, to lead the people into the land. And that's where we come to the end of section one, uh, the story where we've watched how God has acted. We've just observed. Well, section two, we get the self-description. The questions are asked and the answers are given. Uh, if we jump down to verse seven of chapter 33, we're told that Moses would meet with God in a tent that had been set up for them outside the camp, not right in the middle, away from the people, but not too far away. The people could still see the tent. And in verse 11, the Lord, the Lord's presence would come down on the tent and he would speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. And in that conversation, what Moses wants most is to know God better. Maybe, like us, he's been slightly puzzled with how God has acted in the previous chapter or longer. He wants things cleared up. Why did you do what you did? Why did you behave the way you you did? Because it's what he needs if he's going to lead the people properly. So, So look at what he says in chapter 33, verse 13. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favour. He wants to know what it is that guides God's actions, what lies at the core of God's being. Verse 17, God agrees, and he says, I will do the very thing you've asked, because I'm pleased with you. And then verse 18, Moses adds another request. Now show me your glory. Teach me your ways, show me your glory. Now, the glory of God, we've heard about it a little bit. It's just sort of sprinkled through Exodus. It's a visible representation of God. The people saw the glory of God when the pillar of cloud led them through the desert. And when it settled, or the smoke settled on Mount Sinai, that's called the glory of God. A visible representation of God. That's what Moses asked for. But look at what God offers instead. He says, verse 19, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord Yahweh, in your presence. I'm merciful and compassionate, but you can't see my face or you'll die. God reveals himself, his character, most clearly in words not in what he looks like. Our God is a God who speaks. And then verse 23, he promises that he will pass by Moses and he'll put Moses in a cleft, a split in the rock, so he doesn't get destroyed, just burned up. We're told he'll cover Moses with his hand and he'll only see God's back but not his face. Once again, more body parts. And that's the way it seems to have happened. It's not spelled out exactly, but as we move into chapter 34, Moses makes two more stone tablets to replace the ones that were broken, and he heads up Mount Sinai again. And then we get to verse 5. These verses I've been uh, pointing towards uh, all morning. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, 
slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Now, as I said, these verses are quoted more times in the Bible than any other. And they're God's answer to Moses' two requests. Teach me your ways, show me your glory. And this is God's answer. What is God's character like? How does he act? How does he act? Well, on the positive side, he's merciful. He withholds punishment that we deserve. That's mercy, to not give something bad that's deserved. And he's also gracious. He gives us good things that we don't deserve. He's merciful and gracious, and he's slow to anger. You remember how quick, uh, quick being uh, getting angry is getting a hot nose? Well, to be slow to anger in Hebrew is to be long of nose. So God is long of nose. Uh, that's his character. He's slow to get angry. That's why Moses was able to pray for God not to destroy them, and God didn't, because he's slow to get angry. And instead of getting, ang- getting angry, he's more likely to show steadfast, reliable, consistent love. It's a very difficult word in Hebrew to translate, this word hesed. It, it's everywhere in the Bible, but it's got the idea of being faithful. It's got the idea of being true. It's got the idea of being loving and feeling emotions. It's keeping your promises. It's all of these things. Truthful faithfulness as well. In verse 7, when he applies his character to how he deals with people, he shows steadfast love to thousands of generations and forgives their sin. But on the other hand, that's not all he is. He does have limits. As slow as he is to anger, there is a point at which his justice will fall, where his patience will run out. He will certainly punish the guilty. Israel mustn't abuse his patience, his long-suffering. But notice in comparison to how long his love is, to a thousand generations, his punishment runs out of steam after three or four because he's compassionate and gracious. And verse 8, Moses bows to the ground and worships God. And so should we. As quick to sin as we are, God is quicker to forgive. As slow to repent as we are, God is slower to become angry. As faithless and wandering as we are, God is faithful and reliable. As lying and dishonest as we are, God is truthful and consistent. Yes, God is just. Yes, God will punish sin. But he's overwhelmingly for us, not against us. He's patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to eternal life. And so verse 10... God renews his covenant with Moses and with Israel. 
And down in verse 28, Moses writes all the words down on, a second, on the second pair of stone tablets and he's there for another 40 days and 40 nights. And when he finally does come down, his face is glowing because he's met with God. He asked to see the glory or the radiance of God and now he's reflecting it. And the people are afraid. What an incredible event that the Lord would speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. That God would reveal his character and his glory to someone and show him his ways. It's no wonder that this is the most quoted paragraph in the whole Bible. But as clear an explanation as it is of God, there is an even clearer explanation. When God speaks about himself in his Son, the Lord Jesus. Fittingly, the beginning of John's Gospel calls Jesus the Word. God's self-communication. And we're told he was with God in the beginning and was God. Who better to tell you what God is like than someone who's with God and was God? And then we get to verse 14 of John 1. You thought Exodus 34, 6 and 7 were pretty special, but this is even better. (laughs) The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who has come from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus made his dwelling among us. It's literally he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent. Just like God did when he set up, when he came down on the tent of meeting and met with Moses. And John says, we've seen his glory. The glory of the only, the one and only who's come from the Father. The only one who could truly reveal God himself is the the only one who's come from the Father. Moses asked to see God's glory. And God hid him in a cleft in the rock and protected him with his hand and he got to see his back. But John and the other eyewitness are said to have seen the glory of God. In the God-man, Jesus. Jesus who walked and talked and ate with them. And while God revealed himself to Moses as abounding in love and faithfulness, Jesus was revealed as full of grace and truth. Very good argument that these are the identical categories. One in Hebrew, one written in Greek, but we're meant to put those two phrases together. Abounding in love and faithfulness, full of grace and truth. Overflowing with generous mercy and reliable consistency. That's Jesus. The same characteristics of Yahweh. Because he is Yahweh. As unique as Moses' experience was, the eyewitnesses to Jesus saw God even more clearly. John adds in verse 18, No one's ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. We got to see Jesus. Not even Moses saw God's face, but John 
and the other disciples have seen Jesus. But here's the great news. What's truly amazing is that we get to do the same. We get to look over the shoulders. We get to look through the eyes of those eyewitnesses and listen to their testimony. And we get to see God himself revealed in the person of his son, Jesus. Jesus, full of grace and truth. Merciful, forgiving, reliable. But more than that, we don't just get to see him, we get to know him. We can know God, not just know about him. John says in verse 12 of chapter 1, Yet to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Sons and daughters, heirs of the God who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And that, out of all the things that God has told us this morning about himself, that's the best bit of information of all, I reckon. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what an amazing passage. But even more amazing is how you have revealed yourself to us through the Lord Jesus, full of grace and truth. Help us to trust him and through him to to know and to trust and to love you. Amen.